Macworld Podcast number 214, special edition for October 20th, 2010. I'm your host, Chris Green from the Macworld Podcast, and what makes this a special edition is that today Apple held a special event on the Apple campus called Back to My Mac. To talk about it, I'm joined by Macworld Editorial Director Jason Snell. Hello. Senior Editor Dan Frakes. Hey, Chris. And Senior Associate Editor Dan Morin. Hi, Chris. The event was billed as Back to My Mac, and the invitation hinted so because of the picture of a lion on it and an indication that they would be showing a preview of the next version of Mac OS X. But Apple also introduced some new products, including iLife and a new version of the MacBook Air. As usual, they started the event by Steve Jobs coming out to thunderous applause. And at that point, he turned it over to various Apple employees and managers. And he started with Tim Cook, who gave an overview of the Mac. Yeah, it was really Tim Cook trying to offset a lot of the people uh, who have been saying that the Mac isn't important to Apple and it's not a big part of their business and that Apple is really not focused on it anymore. And it was really them saying, look, the Mac if it was by itself, would still be a pretty darn big business. And, you know, it would be one of the, what, 150 biggest businesses? Number 110. Number 110 in the Fortune 500. Yeah, so the Mac business alone is a big business, and that was one of the things that Cook really wanted to emphasize, is that the Mac is successful. They're selling more Macs than ever before. Um, Even though Apple's had all this great growth with the iOS devices, the Mac is still a big business, and it's a growing business, and it's very successful for Apple. I think another part of it is that uh, you know Cook is not somebody who traditionally gets a lot of FaceTime, no pun intended, with uh, with the press, etc. Outside of like the financial conference calls, and you know, not not to say anything. You know, Steve obviously was there, and he was he was sort of gluing everything together. But I think there's there's a definite point in having Cook as a more public facing figure, since he is widely thought to be the, the you know the next presumptive CEO should Steve decide to retire. Yeah, I agree with that. I, it was great to see him because he is a sharp guy, and it was nice that they, they had him do some of the substantive um, discussions of Apple and the Mac business um, instead of Steve. And I, I, don't, I don't read any tea leaves there either. I think that it's just one of those things where he's part of this really solid management team they've got, and the more they can sort of dilute this view of Steve Jobs as the guy who does everything, it's just Steve Jobs and a bunch of janitors, the better it is for Apple. So the, after Tim's little talk. We were introduced to iLife 11. And I think maybe to the surprise of some people in the audience, there were the same five applications that we are accustomed to. Well, three really, plus a couple other also rands. Yeah. And that really was the way they presented it. It's, they said, and here are the five icons. And, and some of us thought, okay, iDVD is dead this time. And, and sure enough, there was the icon still there. And Steve said, and we're going to talk about three of them. And he started with iPhoto. Yeah, iPhoto. Well, that is, uh, we definitely saw in our live blog some grousing among the commenters about all the time devoted to iPhoto. But the fact is, not only is iPhoto undoubtedly the most used iLife app, but I think in many ways iPhoto is the app that sells Macs, especially in the retail stores, because when you buy a Mac, you get iLife and you get that complete photo management stuff You know, it's on the drive when you buy your Mac, and that's huge for them. That's how they reach consumers is with with a product like iPhoto more than any other product in the suite. Yeah, well, and because it's it's the kind of thing that everybody takes pictures. Almost everyone has a digital camera now. Not as many people edit movies. Certainly not as many people are musicians and use GarageBand or want to go 
through the trouble of creating a website or use IDVD, but iPhoto is a universal application and a universal need for, for Mac users. So they did spend a fair amount of time with it. Anything earth-shattering? Well, it's it's most interesting to note um, the big sort of marquee feature that they spent a lot of time talking about is this new full-screen mode for iPhoto. Um, and they were talked about, well, we introduced a full-screen mode in, in the previous version, and people really, really liked it, so, or so they said. And so now we're going to beef it up and add even more. And what you'll notice as soon as you go into that full-screen mode is, gee, this looks a lot like the iOS I mean, down to the toolbars at the bottom with the little icons, you could have just pulled the entire thing off the iPad photo app. Um, so, And it lets you do what's kind of weird about it is that it lets you access everything that's in the iPhoto app in this full screen interface, faces, places, events, albums, or projects. I mean, in many ways, it seems much more capable than the standard window-based uh, interface that we've been dealing with for iPhoto for a while. And I mean, they even alluded to that a couple times saying, oh, this looks a lot like the iPad photo interface. But it's clear, I mean, that was sort of our first hint that that the iOS is really going to inform a lot of the directions that, that Apple's taking with the Mac OS from here forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't see huge changes to, uh, to iPhoto. Uh, some nice refinements. Steve talked about, um, so, no, Phil was doing iPhoto. He talked about new books, um, some full-page stuff. The new locations features are actually kind of neat. Yeah. And it's much more... Interactive, you you can bring up a, up a globe that shows pins, you know, the little push pins for all the locations you've taken photos, and and uh, you can now do location based slideshows that it's all automatic, which is kind of neat. So if you go on vacation and you take photos from you know various cities around Europe, uh, you can do a slideshow where it automatically brings up a map and then kind of zooms in on London and then shows a slideshow of all the photos from London, and then it kind of zooms out and then flies to Paris, and you know it, it's the kind of thing where. You're not going to use this every day, but for that one time when, you know, the relatives come over and you want to show them your vacation, it's a pretty cool, you know, way to do it. And better integration with uh, Facebook and Flickr. Right. Yeah, it looks like you can actually see all of your Facebook and Flickr uh, photos now as opposed to only the ones you uploaded from within iPhoto, which is a nice uh, nice change to make it not so iPhoto-centric. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're Apple's always been a little behind on the social networking mm-hmm. scene. And it looks like they're trying to you know, take baby steps in this direction. And, and in iPhoto now, they've got the little social media sidebar. So you can see, like Jason said, all the photos you've upgrade, uploaded to Flickr and, and Facebook. And you can even see your Facebook comments on those photos within iPhoto. Right, but you can't see your Flickr friends. So you only see your own Flickr stream. Right, it's for your photos and not the photos of your friends. Right. Um, and then they have this new letterpress card thing, which they took took the trouble to show a video of. That's a video that's embedded in the app, actually. Yeah. So, everyone, so everyone can see it. Yes, exactly. And and so describe what these cards are all about. Well, it's a, you know, it's a classic uh, uh, process. It's these, like, cotton-based paper cards they're super luxurious we got to handle some you and i chris and and they're uh debossed so they've got the like indentations in them and they're and then what they do is they do they have a set of themes and presumably they have pre-printed 
cards in these various themes, and then they run those cards through their digital printing process to customize them. So, you know, your message doesn't get um, debossed into the paper. Your message would get printed on. But um, the combination is pretty striking, and it's one of these examples where Apple is not trying to create the cheapest card you can buy in bulk so you can send out 100 uh, to your friends at, at, at the holidays. It, it, they are making it like, you know, you spend three, four five, whatever it is with shipping on a card, and you're getting something that feels like it's a real super handmade, uh, just-for-you grandma kind of card, a one-off sort of deal. Um, so they're beautiful. They're expensive, but they are they are beautiful. Yeah, and they incorporate uh, emailing photos to people inside iPhoto, which I think is really nice, because I know when we've done it at home, my wife wants to do it, so okay, press email, but then they're going to go over to your email application. And once they're there, then you type a message and you've you've lost your connection to iPhoto, essentially, until you switch back again. Well, very iOS feature there, too, where you're essentially getting the embedded mail sheet that comes up in iPhoto and um, and you never leave the app, which is you know such such an iOS kind of feature. Um, but it is good because they it allows iPhoto to generate essentially a um, a JPEG that is a a montage of photos and embed that single image in your email or. I guess, and you can opt to attach the originals as well in a zip archive or an optimized version of the originals in a zip archive that will go under five, under five megs. Five megs, so it will go through any uh, server. Yeah, right, which is pretty clever. So you've got options about sharing your photos via email, which is good because that's yeah. like the number one thing I think you want to do out of iPhoto in terms of sharing. Right. And then when they showed off the new books, I immediately thought, I need to make a book because yeah, right. it just... Uh, I know the features there, but I forget about it. And then every time they show it to me again, I go, oh, yeah. And these books look really good. The layout looks much easier than it has in the past. I did one in the demo room, and it was very nice indeed. They showed, like, you can do a two-page spread of photos. You can do little text boxes. They've made it a lot smarter pulling from metadata. It'll group photos that are from, like, a specific day together. It'll look for faces and try to make sure that you don't cut off any faces when that automatically inserts them. I mean, like, you could do worse than easily just pressing, you know, oh, create a book, bam, you're done. I mean, if you want to tweak it from there, that's obviously yeah. possible. I was told the one thing that I've used it for is a couple times is I've made some calendars using photos. That's currently not in there, but one of the reps in the room told me that it would be coming in a software update soon. Right, they said it would be available by the time... Uh, the holiday calendar buying season rolls around, I believe is how they phrase it. I, I didn't know that was an actual season, but okay. Well, at the end of the year is when you tend to buy your calendar for the next year. So I think that they're, I think that they're probably, um, this is actually one of the nice things about iLife coming out in the fall instead of back like it used to in January is that they'd, all the new calendar formats would come out right after you'd buy your calendar. And then it would be almost a year before you would actually want to buy a calendar. So that they're syncing that up, but it's not available uh, yet. One of the other things that those uh, book building tools do is look at your ratings on your photos and they will, um, the big, your big spreads and giant images will be weighted toward your highest rated photos. So it encourages you to do those star ratings for your, for your photos. I mean, I think that's a trend that Apple is now uh, doing over the last couple of versions of iLife is that You've always had the ability to rate photos and to organize things in different ways and to put faces and places and stuff. But for the first couple versions of that, those features, you kind of said, well, why do I do this? And Apple's finally now in the last couple versions, uh, and especially in this one, <clears throat> adding features that automatically use all that data. Mm -hmm. So you can finally say, okay, now that I've rated stuff, 
it's actually using those ratings to make to pick which images are bigger. And it's for slideshows, my my locations and my faces and stuff. And uh, you know, as we'll get to in a minute, even iMovie now is using faces. So. So there's finally reasons to do those things. Right. Then they moved on to iMovie 11, and um, and they brought out the product manager for it. And uh, Randy Ubelos, yeah, Randy so, Ubelos, who's been involved out. in basically every major video editing product ever. Right. And uh, and he said, uh, we have some dynamic new features, and um, for those people who do not like iMovie 08 or iMovie 09... You'll be thrilled to know that you can continue hating it. (laughs) Exactly. There isn't a whole lot that's changed in regard to what you really wanted, which is timeline editing, because that has not changed at all. Um, It was interesting to me that the one thing they called out as what was really important to people is audio editing, which I thought was an interesting choice. I agree, because I've used iMovie 9 a lot, and I'm, I'm getting better at using it. And I do find with 09 that the audio editing was really clumsy, and so... It is better now, but that doesn't seem to be the hallmark feature. There could have been other things they'd done, but instead they chose audio editing to call out as the big deal. Well, it was. it is a pretty serious breakdown in trying to get control. And I actually – I know people really want the timeline back instead of the sort of broken up, word-wrapped timeline that shows up in iMovie. Um, I, can, I can understand that, although I, I think Final Cut is – is really what Apple is saying is use Final Cut if you want the traditional nonlinear video interface. But if you can work within that system, what you'll find very rapidly is that you lose control when it comes to audio. I mm-hmm. think that's true, that, that you run into a barrier where you're like, God, I don't want it to do that. I want it to do this, and you can't. So um, good for them for, for taking that on because it is allowing people – uh, some more control, and you got to view iMovie. I mean, it's a big step for Apple to add features that allow people to do um, fiddly things that let you generate more professional output. Because what they really like, and what we saw with the rest of the demo, is they like pre-canned themes and transitions. And now that we've got these movie trailers, and the, they are very flashy, and you're just supposed to sort of drag things into it and let Apple do the magic. Um, so to have them actually let you do something like um, fiddle with your audio, that's a good feature that that isn't sort of against the grain of what Apple has done with a lot of iMovie features. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, in my limited, I don't use iMovie that much. When I do use it, I have to say I've been far more limited by the audio, hmm. lack of audio controls than what I can do with video clips. Hmm. I mean, it's usually the audio is bad or the levels are off or right. I want to fade and things like that. Just pretty simple stuff that you don't really think about until you actually get into a project and start using it. So I was really glad to see them address audio issues. Okay. Well, let's talk about those trailers. They <laughs> demo really, really well, but just, I'm just going to hand the microphone to Dan Morin and let him, cause he was sitting there next to me, like jumping up and down out of his seat about the movie trailer. Okay. So you think this is, they're really great. It's kind of you to say that I was not giggling like a schoolgirl when we all know that was the case. Um, I, I mean, I think they're, they're really cool ideas. I think the problem as always with so many of the things that Apple puts in is that, you know, even with 15 really cool themes and, you know, complete with music and intertitles and all this stuff, um, it's going to quickly become, we've seen, you know, a gazillion YouTube trailers with this kind of trope before, and it may lose its novelty rather quick. That said, I think that there is something really appealing. I mean, maybe that's just speaking to the movie trailer as kind of a format, like it's got a very constrained format that we all know, group shots, close-up shots, you know, credits, intertitles, great symphonic music in the background. Um, But I think you're going to see a lot of people, I think you're going to see a lot of people having fun with it. 
you know, taking videos they've shot on their vacations or whatever and shooting a, a joke, you know, a nice little joke video to throw on a DVD or throw up on YouTube for their, for their family. And, and I think there's a structure that appeals to that in the same way that, you know, the previously there wasn't sort of a, if you wanted to make a video, you know, you're kind of at loose ends. You got to figure out how to put everything together, how you feel, get the shots right. And, you know, it doesn't really have a structure to it. Whereas, you know, a movie trailer, it's like a couple minutes, right? You know, a minute or two. And it's really very tight in terms of what it uses. It looks great. I mean, honestly, the ones they showed off and the themes that they show off look awesome. You, they got the London Symphony Orchestra <laughs> to record Edby Road to, to to do music in the background. I mean, like you could never get that production value for yourself, but it looks like fun. So, do we know if they're constrained to a minute long or so? Because I am assuming that they're constrained by the length of the soundtrack. Yeah, I assume so. I think I think they vary a little bit based on uh, if you open up. Uh, a new project in iMovie and you go through the templates it tells you I think how long they are okay. um, by default I don't know if that's adjustable but I agree with Jason that I think that the soundtrack is probably the limiting factor for most of them well, well I was just in there thinking that it's kind of cheesy in some ways and it's you know you're, you're bound to get tired of these after a while but I've got you know reels and reels of old videotapes and you know discs full of video that I've taken with my video camera or my iPhone that I never have touched. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is, like Dan said, it's like it's such an ordeal to sit down and import it all and then actually go through and, and make a movie out of it. And I was thinking, for some things, this is all I really want to do is yeah. just, you know, a 30-second movie that I can send to relatives, you know, or family or friends about, you know, a vacation. And if I can do it in a way that's kind of, you know, funny and, and organized and makes it entertaining for 30 seconds – I mean, that's that's a win. Yeah, and your relatives probably won't tell you this, but most of them really only want to see right, 30 exactly, seconds exactly, to a minute exactly, of your stuff right. instead of 25 yeah. minutes of the baby burping. Right. Okay, so that was iMovie 11. Then they went on to um, GarageBand. Yes, Chris, tell us about GarageBand. Well, I'll tell you about GarageBand. Um, this one is designed for musicians, much like the last one was. They didn't... Add, as far as we know, any podcasting features. It was really about music. And what they've done is they've taken some of the features from Logic Express and, uh, and Logic Studio, which is the pro uh, music apps, and they've made them easier to use. One of them is called FlexTime, and one of them is called Groove Matching. And the way they described Groove Matching is uh, the drummer is playing right on, or you've got a, a loop that's uh, perfectly timed. The rest of the band cannot play in rhythm to save their life. And you essentially say, the drum track is our metronome track. That's what everybody else is going to lock to. And then you select the other tracks, and they all lock down to that. And they took a bad band. I mean, basically, I think they're really a good band that had to play badly. Right. It did sort of sound like it was 3 in the morning, and they'd all, they were all drunk. Except the drums, because the drums were an Apple loop. Right. The drummer was locked, but everybody else was like, what? And dude, dude, did you hear me play the bass there? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa so yeah. Good. But it was impressive. And they, you know, you just select these things and you say, do it. And it does. And then suddenly everybody's in time without making it sound robotic, that it still sounded like it had the feel to it. Um, and then what FlexTime does is it allows you to take little snippets and move them around in time. Um, digital audio snippets. So if you've played one chord or a couple of chords out of time and you just want to move them around, this is something you could do before with copy and paste, but it was kind of a pain in the neck to do. But this, you just grab the thing and you move that bit where you want it and you can elongate 
or shorten audio if you want. So if somebody stopped playing too soon, you can grab that and extend it by a few seconds, and it sounds natural. Yeah, it's like it's turning those things into objects that are then draggable and, um, you know, lengthenable and shortenable. Um, so you can really just, like, grab a guitar chord and slide it to the right a little bit to make it happen later. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then lessons. They brought lessons back um, again, and they've expanded them. And I'm very happy to hear this because I liked the lessons they presented with Tim. Tim's back. Yes. And uh, he's our piano teacher and our guitar teacher. And they have now broken these into certain kinds of lessons. So you, they have a blues lesson um, or a series of blues lessons, rock lessons. They have classical for the piano. And then fitting into that is the how did I play feature. And that has like that's Garage Band Hero. That's basically where where it's actually highlighting in yellow if you're off time and if you're red if you play the wrong note, and it gives you a percentage on um, score. So if you start to make some mistakes, it'll go down to 96, 94, 90, and then it goes back up again. And that's um, it's fun while you're playing it, I think, but it's also pretty cool because then afterward you can rewind it and see where you went wrong. Right. And that's um, that's good. That's like computer assisted practice, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, right now. I, I kept thinking back to being, you know, when I was in a kid and doing piano lessons and how I never wanted to practice. Um, and I would actually get to the point where I would just like play through songs as fast as possible so that I could yeah. get done with it. Um, and I think it's tough because if you don't know where you've screwed something up or, you know, it's hard to hear if your timing's off unless you've got developed that ear. I think there's a there's a lot of potential benefit here for for people who really do want to learn and improve on these instruments. And and as speaking again, as someone who doesn't really touch the piano much anymore, I, I'm definitely intrigued by the more directed lessons where it's like, here, we're going to teach you how to play this Mozart piece. Yeah. Um, it seems really cool from my perspective. Yes, hello, I'm Sting, and I'm going to show you to how how you cannot play Roxanne. Okay. Yeah, there there are not artist lessons no. that do this. No, so I think they have something like twenty three pieces now that you can play, and uh, and I asked, oh good, are there more coming? And they said, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. It's it's day one. So look, we're we're giving you twenty three now, so that that should be plenty. Um, but I like that. I, I hope to see that uh, Apple pursue this. So then they finished up iLife, and they said, oh yeah, and then there are a couple of other things. Yes. Yes. DVD and iWeb are there. Are there? Uh, yeah, and they're still there. Yep. So look for them on the uh, dock or not. At least they actually mentioned it, unlike the uh, iPod event where they said, we've updated every iPod, and then the classic was never mentioned, but still available. Yeah, they were on the slide and everything, although I have to, I was looking at the slide and looking at that ancient uh, iDVD icon and thinking, I'm waiting for the event where Steve Jobs just sort of waves his hand and the iDVD icon vanishes in a puff of smoke, and he says, it's gone, and we've just integrated burning into iMovie. But it didn't happen this time. You can do that right now from the dock. You can just drag it off and do a puff of smoke. Well, Steve's going to do it in public. That's what I'm saying. No uh, no coffin for iDVD. iDVD's coffin will be a small plastic case. <laughs> right. So uh, iLife is available today. It's $49. And if you get a new Mac, it's free just as it always has been. So nothing nothing new on the pricing or the freeness. FaceTime comes to the Mac. Nobody's surprised. Nobody. The only thing that surprised me was that it's not in, integrated into iChat, that it's its own app. Right. Well, I mean, I think though, my perspective from that, especially looking at the uh, the demo units they had out afterwards, is that um, the setup time for FaceTime is so fast. Like literally, you you put in your, your you know your Apple ID or whatever, and you're done. Whereas I think 
I think iChat's overkill for a lot of people. I mean, look at the simplicity that they've put into it on the iPhone and the iPod Touch. You know, it works with all your existing contacts. You just press, you know, tap somebody, bam, that's it. I don't think they wanted to have people worry about, wait, what am I, why am I signing up for this AOL thing or mobile me or what have you? And instead, it's just a standalone app that does one thing, and that's video chat. Um, and you know, it's, it looks, it looks very bare bones. If you look at it, it almost looks like, and I think it is a beta to be fair. I mean, but it, it almost looks like somebody cobbled it together over like a few days. Like, oh yeah, we, we can throw something like this together. But I mean, it works. We've tested it a few times here and it, it seems to work nicely and it's gonna, you know, make a lot of people happy. I think for me, the one question that didn't really get brought up today is of course, when they introduced FaceTime back in June, um, Steve Jobs said pretty, you know, like, oh, hey, we're going to we're going to open source this, you know, put it all together in a package so that other developers, you know, for people on like Android or what have you could could make their own FaceTime clients. Mm-hmm. And I think we still haven't really seen any details on that or nor has it been really released to developers because there are no third party FaceTime uh, clients anywhere. Right. So, well, one of the details we did discover is that if you have FaceTime installed on your Mac, and it's shut off, and somebody makes a FaceTime call to you, the app will launch. Um, you can disable that with a little slider in preferences. So you just say, no, FaceTime off. But it doesn't have any time or any scheduling. So say, I will only accept calls between 9 and 4, for example. So it's a little strange because you, you, will just, you think you've quit out of it, and yet it's still kind of lurking there in the background, ready to spring into action. Yeah, suddenly your camera light lights up, and you're not on camera, but you will see a preview of yourself. And you can still accept, so you don't automatically accept. So people are not going to see you in your jammies if you don't care for them. Also, if you have... Um if you're using a fourth generation iPod touch, which also uses your email address to associate a FaceTime account and say you have a, an iPod touch and FaceTime on your Mac and they both use that same email address. We found that if you call that email address, it will ring on both devices simultaneously. And then whichever one you uh, answer it on, the other ones will all automatically hang up basically. Oh, okay. And then lion, finally lion makes its appearance and, um, and they talked about some major features of Lion being part of this whole back to the Mac thing. And, and that's where Steve came out and he described what he really means by back to the Mac, which is really incorporating elements of the iOS into Mac OS X. Right. The, we saw it with iLife and uh, now it's now it's back. We've got uh, we've got Apple learning lessons and sort of Apple's state of the art, I guess, of user interface design and app design from a from ios and then rolling it back into the mac so what they talked about with lion is not only these full screen interfaces from iLife being a hint of it but they're going to add um they're kind of merge expose and um and uh what else a, bu- a bunch dashboard. of their dashboard yeah all of these like um Widget and window management apps are all just kind of getting rolled into this uh, this uh, new what is it, mission control feature, which I mean, but really you can see where Apple's going with this, which is which is really um, you'll have an app uh, an app list that comes down that lists all the apps on your system. And uh, that's a little like the home screen. You'll have uh, a bunch of apps running in a full screen mode because this is essentially a new mode for Apple. This this iPhone, iOS like 
full screen mode. And then with something like Mission Control, you'll have the ability to almost like flip between full screen apps and regular apps, um, a little bit like you're flipping through apps in on the iOS. And so, you know, a, as a as a as a whole, what Apple's sort of saying is like this is your new way to move around. It's sort of app centric and lots of full screen and uh, and. And that's a big that's a big change, but um, I, you you kind of had to see it coming because that is the the mode that they think works best on the iOS. The problem is that you know sometimes you need um, to have multiple apps working together, and Apple's not saying you can't do that. But Apple does seem really enamored with at least for some kinds of apps like iPhoto, the idea that you're just locked in iPhoto. That's where you're doing your work, and if you want to move to another app, you just completely wipe it away. Right. Yeah, and I think there's some concern. About from people saying, "Oh, they're going to move way, way too much towards the iOS," and but it seems to be that Apple's saying, "We've got a new full screen mode, and apps can use it. And if they use it, we've got ways to to switch between them and deal with them. Mm-hmm. But you're not forced to use that. You can still continue to use your 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 Mac the way you always have with you know standard Windows and stuff. So if that's the case, then that's that's great. I mean, because there are definitely apps that that are better full screen. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole, a whole, uh, you know, line of different you know, writing apps that go full screen to hide everything else right. behind it. Right. So, I mean, I don't think there's any question that some apps will do better in that environment. So as long as they, they allow you to do both. And I think that's great. Right. And then they bring touch in. And I think to at least none of our surprise, when they talk about touch, they say, well, look, I mean, people are talking about touching the screen of their, of their Mac or their, or their laptop. And that's silly because it hurts your arm and, and who would do that? Yeah, what did Jobs say? Touch wants to be horizontal. Is that is that the phrase yeah. he used? Yes. Touch. Yeah. So what they say is uh, use the trackpad or use our dedicated trackpad, or we we've, we've given you this mouse that you can use as a touch surface. Yeah, it was almost that wasn't even so much a feature announcement as it was sort of a feature non announcement mm-hmm. that they're saying this is why we're not doing this. There's been a lot of speculation. It's a bad idea. We don't we don't think you want to use your computer this way. We have this great glass touch surface that's got the same technology that's on our our handheld devices, our mobile devices, and it's the trackpad and that's what you can use. And, you know, and then and basically they're furthering what they've already done on the Mac OS, which is build in lots of multi-touch gestures that you use a trackpad or the magic mouse or the magic trackpad to uh, to get to. And that's that's fine. I think that's reasonable. I, I you know, they um, I don't want to be reaching out. That's actually one of the things I, I hate about using an iPad and an iPad dock is that when I have to take my hands off the keyboard and then reach out to the docked iPad in order to touch something, it completely breaks the spell. It's very, it's very jarring to go back and forth. And I think the other part of that is, um, you know, they're saying we've already, not only do we have the trackpads, we've got the mouse, the magic mouse, we built it in the magic trackpad. Um, and it's, you know, touch in some ways is a different, different beast on the Mac than it is on the, on the iOS. I mean, Heck, I, I even get tired holding out my. Uh, I did like a FaceTime chat on an iPhone once for like five, ten minutes or whatever, and your arm gets pretty tired after about that much time just holding a phone up in front of your face. So imagine that you're sitting in front of your computer all day with your hands out, 
you know, and yeah, I guess it might be a good upper body workout, but <laughs> no, you'd be crippled at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think, you know, that as, as Jason put it well, I think it was a non-announcement. It was a, you know what, we're not doing this because this makes no sense. And that's not the first time that Steve said that even this week. <laughs> that's right. Steve's, Steve's going on a, on a mission to explain why Apple isn't doing all these things Apple is rumored to be doing. Right. Now, I think maybe the most controversial announcement of the day was the Mac App Store. And I think this is something we're going to be hearing a lot about in the coming weeks as people, particularly developers, learn more about it. So now Dan Frakes is nodding, and I know he's going to have a lot to say, and he should, about this. Because, you know, what Dan's been doing the last you know, however many years for Macworld now um, with Mac Gems is find these apps that nobody knows about that are great and um, trying to get them more well-known, you know, and often for free or $5 or $10. And I think that's one of the huge upsides of having a Mac App Store. Not only is it not going to be exclusive like the iOS App Store, but it's going to be – so it's going to be curated and all that, but you don't have to go in it. But if you think about how much traffic gets generated if your app gets listed on Apple.com and their software library, how much uh, people fall over themselves to get their box software into the Apple retail store, the ability for somebody who's got a really neat $10 utility to get that in front of so many Mac users who would never think of going to some random website to buy software but are trained to go to iTunes to buy software, it could really change the fortunes of lots of Mac software developers. Now, other... Mac developers will be unhappy about some of the rules and there's going to be a give and take again. I think Apple's going to get some harsh words from some of its developers and we'll see how it reacts. And if the iOS is any indication, they'll learn and make changes as they go. But um, there have got to be a lot of people who are Mac software developers out there or people who have been developing Mac software and have migrated to the iOS because of the volume that comes out of the App Store. they got to be looking at this and being really excited that in 90 days, they're going to be able to get their $10, $5, $15 app in front of those same people who are buying in iTunes today. And, you know, how exciting is that for them? Well, yeah. And, and this is just from the developer standpoint. And I think it's, it's kind of funny that this is kind of what iOS app developers have been asking for, for, you know, a couple of years is We've got a curated Apple provided store that has its own rules. And if you, you know, you can sell through there. If you don't want to sell through there, if you don't want to go by our rules, you can sell outside the store. And that was kind of, you know, and I think Jason, that was one of your suggestions too, for ways to improve all the, you know, the, the concerns about the app store is let people sell outside. So with the Mac app store, that's exactly what you get. But I also think that from the end user, this is perhaps the biggest news of the day, because I mean, let's face it, I've got an article going up on macworld.com later today about this, but let's face it. The, one of the worst, if not the worst experiences in the Mac OS is installing and updating software. I mean, of all the things that Mac OS 10 is good at finding software, downloading it, installing it, um, whether it's, you it's not, it's not one of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, all the many things. This is not one of them. Yeah. I mean, you, you download something, maybe it's a zip file, Maybe when you unzip that, maybe it's a disk image, maybe it's an installer package, maybe it's just an app that you drag somewhere. Maybe you mount a disk image and then have to explain to you know your your non techie friends what to do with it. I mean, this is it's a mess. And then what, when you want to update software, that means you got to go out and look for it, download it, and go through that whole process again. Except this time, there's already one there. So then you got to you know, I mean, it's it's a mess, right? So I, I as I as I mentioned in this article, I've got of all the friends I know who have Macs. I would could count on one hand the number who regularly update their software 
or, or even download new software. Yet those same exact people, all those people that I know who have Macs and iPhones, they're obsessive about downloading and trying new software on their iPhone. So it's because it's easy. You just go and you browse, you touch a button, and there it is, right? So now imagine if that's how it was on the Mac. You could easily find software, just go browse, you see some reviews, hey, I like it, click a button, and it's there, ready to use. And then once a week, you get a page that says, hey, you've got new versions, click this button, and they're all updated. I mean, that's for the non-techie user. For the techie techie user. I have so much software that I don't realize is not updated until I go to launch it for the first time in like a couple weeks or a month or whatever. And you sit there and go, all right, okay, install update. I mean, even the nice ones, like, you know, the guys that use the Sparkle framework, Mm -hmm. which is really great. It prompts you when you log in, you hit a button, it downloads it, you restart the program, it launches the new one. I mean, that's pretty darn smooth as far as things go. But, I mean, sometimes you even wish there was just a way of being, you know, getting to the point where when you want to launch the software, it's already been updated to the latest version. So I think there's definitely a lot that's going to appeal about that to the consumers. But the developer side, it may be a little bit more of a mixed bag. I think it's going to be very interesting for for the big boys. The Adobe's, for example, one of these features is supposed to be installation really easy. I mean, that's going to put a quarter of Adobe out of business. And also... Think of the price, uh, the price pressure on them so that now you've got mon- many of these small developers like you covered, Dan, that turn out some beautiful stuff. I mean, some of these graphics apps for $35, $40 are maybe not Photoshop, but they provide a lot of the functionality of Photoshop. Adobe wants, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars to these things, and somehow they're supposed to march into the App Store or the Mac App Store and say, yeah, well, sure, theirs is 40 and ours is 400, but we're Adobe. Right, and the user opens up the Mac App Store, they go to photo or graphics apps, and suddenly they see Photoshop for $500, and they see Acorn 2, and they see Pixelmator, and they see you know these rave reviews for $30, $40 software that they can click and get it. I mean... Yeah, but that... The game Adobe is playing is a professional level um, and big installations and site licenses. And the game the Mac App Store is playing is a consumer game, right? I mean, it may not even be something that educational institutions want to get at, let alone big businesses. You buy it with one ID, and then it works on all of your systems. So yes. the that have that ha- are logged in with that ID. So it's it's a, a license for your ID and not per computer um so that changes the restrictions and yeah so it's not you're not going to see photoshop on the app on the mac app store but you will see acorn presumably uh, uh, as long as it gets approved and that gus isn't using you know some strange apis to do some of the things but but that's that's where you see an image editor that costs or pixelmator right so that's where you see an image editor that costs thirty dollars or forty dollars or twenty dollars and not photoshop that's a giant suite that costs hundreds of dollars and is sold in volume licenses with special licensing systems. So I think it's a different approach. There are going to be places where it crosses over. I mean, I think it's a good question to say, would Microsoft be willing to put Word on the store for 50 bucks like Apple seems to be willing to put pages on the store for 20 but I mean, even more to the point there, not just let's let's take the, the you know, sort of the businesses out of the equation. What about apps like Google Chrome or Firefox, which are clear competitors to, you know, Safari, which Apple is, you know, has a huge vested interest in protecting, but they're free apps. I mean, presumably, and if they don't violate any of the terms of service, will Apple allow those on? I mean, they haven't allowed other browsers on the iOS due to, you know, arguably technical restrictions, but I mean, how much of this is a business thing? 
But the beauty of it is it doesn't matter, right? right? I mean, other than visibility, you'll still be able to get Firefox and Chrome. And I know there are going to be people who say, oh, well, this is just the start. And then Apple will release a version of the Mac down the road that'll let you lock out anything that isn't from a third party. And then they'll lock it out. And then I don't think that's going to happen. Although I think those stories are probably already being written and posted on websites. You know the ones right now. Um, but, I, you know, it's a different it's a different game. And I think that's the beauty Oh, and it's what we've been saying absolutely about the iOS is once it's not the only game in town, then it's a totally different story. It's like, hey, if Apple doesn't want to put Firefox and Chrome on the on the Mac App Store, whatever, because they can go somewhere else and still sell their wares or in their, their case, give away their wares. And that's OK. Well, and it also raises a couple other questions. One is if it makes it, you know, iPhone OS, iOS easy to install and update apps. Will it also make it just as easy to do uninstall apps? Because that's a huge issue for Mac users is how do I uninstall this? If there was a way for you to go into the little, you know, the, what do you call it? The, um, was it mission control where all your apps show up on the screen and just click an X to, to, to uninstall the app and all its support files, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, I wonder if they're going to sandbox apps as they have on iOS. Right. Do they do that on the Mac too and leave yeah. all their resources within that one package and just say, it's gone? Well, and then you, Jason, you mentioned, you know, people are going to get afraid that Apple's eventually going to release a version that only lets you, you know, buy apps this way. But what if that's an option? I mean, what if well, in a, it could be a parental control, right? right? Exactly. You can only buy age rated, you know, four and up apps from the app store. That's the only thing your, your, your Mac will let you install. I mean, that'd be a great parental control. Sure. But there was, Chris, there was. one more one more thing, uh, and it was the anticipated thing. You actually brought your your old uh, old Bessie. Well, it was it wasn't old when I brought it. It was old when I left. It is old now. My MacBook Air. Yeah. So I like to say, um, I said earlier today, this is the one day where everybody else seems to care about the MacBook Air, and it's not just me. Just today. Tomorrow, you know, they may not care anymore. Dan Frakes will care slightly. But um, uh, but I've always liked the MacBook Air. I've been a MacBook Air user essentially every since since day one. Um, and so really exciting to see the new MacBook Air. And the thing that really, um, really surprised me, despite all the rumors beforehand that there might be two models, I really figured there'd only be one. And when Steve Jobs announced the 13-incher, I thought, all right, well, they're just sort of revving the, the MacBook Air. And then bang, 11-inch MacBook Air was announced, the little brother of the 13-inch of the MacBook Air. So that big, that's like Apple's netbook. It's $9.99. It's not really a netbook. It's got a full-size keyboard, but it's tiny. It's like the 12-inch PowerBook brought back to life. Right, and so this satisfies not only the people who find MacBooks to be too heavy, but the ones who who have wanted that little laptop, right. and now they've got it. I'm talking, by the way, right now because Dan and and Dan are just sitting here playing with the 11 inch <laughs> MacBook Air, and uh, they're in trance. Yeah, we have a couple of them here, and um, they are very light. They're very light and small. I, I think the thing that gets me the most is that really, I mean, so you know, Steve talked about a number of the the features that they look to borrow from the iPad as far as hardware design goes. And the one that gets me, which I think has been misinterpreted because he didn't really spell it out, is this idea of instant on, which is to say that, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, and you press the button and it turns right on. And I think that's that's not quite what they're going to. It, it boots up speedily enough. But I think, you know, in sort of the, the you know, ideal Steve Jobs vision, you never turn your, your Mac off, right? You put it to sleep and then you stick it in your bag. And, and as far as that goes... Um, 
putting to sleep a mat one of these suckers is literally like closing like a book like i keep waiting for it to do the thing with my laptop where it spins everything down and i'm sitting there waiting i just realized when i did that before there's not even a sleep light on this like there's no there's no indicator like it doesn't start pulsing when when you shut it off there's nothing there's no light so i sat there waiting like okay is it, is it sleep yet and i realized wait it sleeps as soon as you close the lid that's crazy and then you open it back up again and it's right there and that's combined with this whole new standby mode that they've used to eke out this incredible basically you put this sucker to sleep and after about an hour it shifts into this uh, stand, low power standby mode and you can apparently get 30 days or so they claim 30 days of of time if you just leave it in your in your bag or whatever mm-hmm. it basically consumes no power when asleep and that's pretty pretty impressive yeah so i'm so like the last one no media drive just buy a you just buy an optical drive if you want it but the boot the the system boot uh restored disc is a usb key drive that comes with it um which is pretty pretty wild and not only no optical drive no hard drive no moving parts drive period well and, and so it's funny um there are things in here that were sort of played as new features by steve jobs that aren't the old macbook air had no optical drive. I really felt like he was resetting the MacBook Air as a concept because, you know, the old one, you know, was was of limited success. And it was expensive when, say. It, first and came when out. it first came out. It was really expensive. So uh, Jobs says, all right, no optical drive. The old one didn't have one. Um, the SSD thing is interesting. There, the, it was an option to have a solid state drive on the old one. Um, but you could also get a, a laptop hard drive. And as a result, what, the way it was built was with a space for a mechanism. And so you could have the hard drive mechanism or you could have one of these solid state drives where it's really just RAM chips, but it's put into the shape of a mechanism. So it fits in a laptop mechanism. It's kind of insane when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, but, but you had to, so you could just sort of swap it in and out and this one it doesn't have that this one there are some storage chips on the motherboard basically that are the storage you can't opt for more or less or a spinning hard drive so if you had one of those ssd macbook airs that part's not really that different but it's allowed them to make it dramatically smaller because they're not using an enclosure they're, they've just got the storage chips and the memory chips all on the uh, on this little tiny motherboard inside the air so it's a uh, it's a pretty dramatic uh, thing, and to, to fit it into that eleven inch, um, uh, eleven point what four, eleven point six diagonal inch screen, um, it's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's very light, very easy to use, full size keyboard. And I, have, I mean, I, we haven't necessarily had enough time to run this through its paces, really. But from my impressions, it's it's pretty snappy. And I mean, again, even these we're using the the models like just come with the two gigabytes. Of, of RAM, which is the standard, although you can, when you build to order it, you can upgrade that to four gigabytes of RAM, but you cannot do it yourself. Um, but from my impressions, it seems very snappy, and I think a lot of that has to do with the disk access being one of the, the bottlenecks on the traditional MacBooks, and the, SA, the the flash memory being great for not only for that, but for things like with uh, virtual memory and stuff like that, it should really speed up a lot of the performance. Yeah, and the 11-inch one, the stock model, is only a, a 1.4 gigahertz, which is actually really pretty slow. I mean, it's the slowest MacBook Air ever, right? The yes. Original, the original is 1.6. And uh, so it's only 1.4, which is really netbook speed, but it's a Core 2 Duo. Um, and I, like the- I don't know. A lot of those netbooks are single-core devices, right? And this is a dual-core, so it's it's – Probably faster than those netbooks, but it's also a lot more expensive than those netbooks. Right, right. It, some of the newer netbooks coming out now are, are Core 2 Duos, but you're right. It's, it's netbook speed, but not a netbook price. Um, uh, but like Dan, I was using Safari, and, and it's, it was 
like flat, fast. I mean, it was really fast. And I was, I was impressed. I don't know how fast it's going to be when you're doing things with big files and you've got multiple applications, but I was impressed by how fast it was for a 1.4 gigahertz. Well, and I look at this and I think, well, for nine ninety nine, you've got a super small MacBook that you can do, you know, you can write on. Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't necessarily edit, edit audio or do a podcast or something like that, or do iMovie on it. Um, that might be stressing it out, but as a, a system, this is not, we were saying, this is not probably the system that you hook up to a big monitor, especially the 11 inch model and uses your main system. This is the kind of thing where you've got an iMac on your desk and then you add this to your life as the thing that you tote around with you as the, the, the cafe system. And I think that's a little more real realistic of a, of a scenario. I know that for me, I, I look at this and think this one I could actually work on, on the bus where the 13 inch is actually a little bit too big for the tiny bus seats. So they've managed to to squeeze in another model between the iPad and a full-blown, maybe 15-inch MacBook Pro. They found another slot. Yeah, there's the, there's the 11, and then there's the 13 Air and the 13 MacBook, and there's the 13 MacBook Pro. So you've got a lot of different kind of variation, which is, which is new for Apple to have that much variation. They haven't done that in a while. And the two USB slots is great because, boy, as an Air user, that one trying to yeah. plow everything through that single slot was really brutal. And then on the 13-inch model, there's a card reader, which we didn't have before, which is also really nice. Yeah, and still no FireWire for those of you clamoring for it at home. I, I think there's something, you know, the big point here, and Steve Jobs was not hesitant in pointing this out, was that he really sees this as this is the future of notebook computing. I mean, that's what he said yeah. pretty much is we envision a day where all MacBooks are basically like this. And the ad that he uh, showed off for it, it basically says the first of the next generation of MacBooks. And so it's not hard to see. Like, I find it interesting, right? Because the, the MacBook Air, the low end is 999 which is the same price point as your standard MacBook, right? And so it's interesting to have those two things in comparison. Sure, you got something with a little more power in the MacBook, but... It, you know, it's compared against something which is extremely light, extremely portable, has that great aluminum unibody construction and and does a lot of the stuff that you need to do. Um, and I think, you know, as we see more revisions coming in the next couple of years here, that it's really going to be more and more like the developments we're seeing here. And that's uh, that's the future of the Mac. Okay. And like iLife 11 and like the beta of FaceTime, it is available Today? today? Today, today. There's a lot of today, today. Yeah, other than the Mac App Store being available in 90 days and and or not Tiger Lion coming next summer at you know WWDC, presumably they'll get a a very final version, if not the final version. Um, Everything else is today. Today, so still in time for the holiday season, and uh, if somebody's been looking for MacBook Air under the tree for 9.99, maybe so. Maybe so. And with that, we will close out this episode of the Macworld Podcast. I'd like to thank Jason Snell. Thank you, Chris. Dan Frakes. Thanks, Chris. And Dan Moore. Thank you, sir. And thank you for listening.